0: Good morning. Thanks for joining us. I know it's been said a couple of times, but I just want to add to it. Um, I think that the, the general Christian refrain on a morning like this, it's been echoed down through the ages, is for me to say something like, Christ is risen, and then you know your part. I'm glad. Well done. If we haven't got a chance to meet, my name is Lance. I know that Zach said hello and welcome earlier, and so did Brian, but we really are grateful We're grateful because you've joined us on a very significant Sunday morning. It's a significant Sunday morning in the life of not only this Christian church, but in the lives of Christians the world over. In fact, there is no day quite like this, where for essentially a 24-hour cycle, there is one theme, one message. You know, it's hard to get everybody on the same page, no matter how compelling our sermon series are. You know, people the world over don't join in and preach on the same theme at the same time from the same passages. But on this particular Sunday morning, there are billions, like in the, with a B, people who are listening to and considering the claims of Christianity, specifically the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, Easter highlights the very core of our faith. And so especially if you're a visitor today, maybe you came with a trusted friend or just wondered or thought, I'll finally check out that weird place down the street. You know, we had a morning service this morning and it was, uh, I think it was 40 degrees or something. It's one of the only times that I've ever taught where I could see my breath the entirety of the time. And so if you, you know, were not wanting to be that particular cold, then, you know, like Jesus said to someone one time, you've chosen the better portion. Uh, This is, uh, we're a bit more indoorsy here now. But if you're a visitor today, you know, and I think of the ways that you could become a visitor. This morning there was a man walking his dog that went by on the street who stopped by the light pole and I think stayed for the entirety of the service. So he was an unplanned visitor, as far as I know. But if you've come with a little bit more planning than that, I just want to say that you've picked a wonderful time to join us. And let me tell you why, because you've shortcutted, you shortcutted the line. You see, there's a lot of beautiful things that are a little bit less central aspects of the faith, but you're here on a morning where you get to see what the whole mess is all about. What is this whole thing about? What do they say? What are we staking ourselves on? What does Christianity really mean? That's what this morning is about. My guess is is that many of you, in addition to visitors or friends, are here and you are a part of a regular church-going experience. In fact, this might be a normal routine for you. I'm grateful for that. But even if it's not normal or routine or regular, there may be some of you who long to be more regular. You think, this would be a place where I want my spiritual longings to be met. Wouldn't it be great if today on an Easter Sunday morning we all were boosted in a particular direction And then we could just sustain that for a while. And now here's the thing. We can batch up all these people together. Novices and visitors. Looky-loos and the curious. Skeptics and doubting. Regular and strong. Irregular and a little bit weak. But all of us longing for something this morning. I have good news. In fact, I don't have any other news. On an Easter Sunday morning, there is only one kind of news. And that is hope That Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The funny thing about us all being at the same place is that in Christianity, the way to make progress is to get down to the basics, is to go back. There's no club of elite or secret knowledge or veterans. There's no secret handshakes. There's no trap door, no special entrance to any other place. You see, all of us have come here, broken, sinful people, standing on the same foundation, and hoping in the same things, that we have a crucified and risen Christ. It's the only way to progress. In fact, one reformer writing hundreds of years ago said, we must bear in mind that the entire gospel consists mainly in the death and resurrection of Christ. And because of this, we must direct our chief attention to this if we are to make progress at all. So in order to get there, in order to make some progress, I want to consider 1 Corinthians 15 with you. I think that is the most plain or one of the most plain places to go when we consider, well, what are we talking about this morning and why is it important and significant? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul is addressing a particular portion of the church that is denying the resurrection. What's interesting is these people continue to come to church. They've maintained a sense of spirituality. They have not jettisoned the whole thing, but it's become a kind of club for them. And here's what he says <clears throat> concerning this. He basically wants to remind them, and you know, what I believe what we're looking for here is, is he wants to remove the resurrection just for a moment so that they would understand and realize what they would be missing. I don't know, wasn't there a song, sometimes you don't know what you got till it's gone or something like that? Did I make that up? Someone should write a song if they haven't yet. But he basically tells them that, and this is how he says, starting in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. I'd ask that you... Pray with me for just a moment. God, you are beyond us, powerful, mighty, good, perfect in every single way. So you're not only beyond us, but you're very different than us. We are often weak, doubting, distracted, full of sin, all kinds of boiling emotions in us all the time. Not very steadfast, but we're here because you have seen fit. You're a God who loves the weak, loves the broken, calls us to yourself. And I ask now, God, we, we've done, I think, all of the normal basic things. We've shown up and we've got a, some songs to sing and prayers to pray and I'm, I'm teaching all the human things we're putting before you. But I pray, God, now, would you do spiritual things? Holy Spirit, would you come into our midst and give us faith and enliven us, open our eyes just a little bit wider, make our hearts just a little bit lighter, a little bit softer, so that we could rejoice and respond properly. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So, Paul's addressing a portion of the church that's denying the resurrection. What they've done is they have continued to be a part of the church, and then they've just said, you know that whole thing about Jesus being raised from the dead? Well, let's not be fools. That kind of thing just doesn't happen. We're more sophisticated than that. How can a dead person be raised to life? That's impossible. And I just want to say this. Did you, do you understand the severity of that, just how insane that is? Paul basically says, what are we doing here? There's much better clubs to join if you just want to be a part of a community. (laughs) There's other places to spend your time. How can you say you're a Christian and remove the resurrection? And he wants to tell them the severity of this, the seriousness of this. Just one other point. I know that there's a lot of people who would say something like, wouldn't it be great to be a part of the early church? You know what we need to do? We just need to get back to the early church. Now, I agree with you. There's some things that must have been wonderful about this day and age, but I also would just say, be careful what you wish for, because the early church was a lot like our church, and that is not that great. I know that's not a good marketing ploy for us, but oh, wouldn't it be great to be in the early church? You mean the early church where a big portion of that particular church were denying the resurrection of Jesus, only one generation beyond His death and resurrection? And it's astounding for a Christian church to to do this. And Paul basically meets the challenge of their thoughts by arguing with them and showing them, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to show you to trust in and to believe what you got by taking it away. In other words, the question for this morning is what hangs on the resurrection exactly? What do we have left if Jesus did not actually defeat the grave? And he's going to give them some consequences. He wants them to say, okay, let's imagine there's no resurrection. He's going to give them some consequences like a good father would. He wants them to realize just how insane this is, how all the hope hangs on it. He basically just says, so what you're saying is it's just Good Friday, because that was undeniable. Jesus, in fact, died. So what you're saying is there's no victory, no newness, no promise, just death and torture and sin, winning again and again and again. The question is, did Jesus die and fall victim to the same thing that 100% of humanity had up to that point and 100% of humanity has since? Is that all there is? Is it just death? Is that the final word? Like a good father who lets his child do something slightly insane and says like, okay, let's see the consequences here. He gives them a few consequences and we're going to go through them. What would it be like to be a part of a church with no resurrection? First, he says, and this becomes the theme of the entire section that I read, so he's saying, listen, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not even been raised, and he's kind of the whole point of this faith. I just want to make a note that he says this like three different times because it is in fact the most important thing that we would lose. If there's no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised and everything else we do falls on him. So it's the first consequence, but it's really a consequence that echoes through all the rest. Consequence number one, if there's no resurrection, Christ has not been raised. Consequence number two, he feels this acutely and maybe I do this morning as well, but he says our preaching would be in vain. Our preaching would be in vain. That means that every single time that someone stands up and pontificates on the realities of spiritual life or hope after death in Christ, all the philosophizing you want to do, all of the teaching, all of it vanity, all of it empty words. Now, this is the point where I recognize that some of you who are visitors who have come and are grateful you've come, maybe as skeptics, maybe you think to yourself, this is the first time I've agreed with a preacher in a long time. Tell me more. Tell me more about the vanity or the emptiness of this conversation. And I would say to you that Paul must feel the reality of that. What a thought. That every bit of faithfulness down through the ages, all of the message of the apostles, just vain. I might as well be reading the phone book. Or better yet, what a lot of people resort to, which is, let me just list out the best jokes I got. At least you'll get a laugh out of it. Paul says to them, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then the whole teaching of the church falls apart. Because the reality is that the church was built on nothing less than the factual preaching that Jesus Christ crawled out of the grave and appeared to hundreds and hundreds. And a small, riddled, doubting little group of people, denying Jesus all the way to the point of his death, became a powerful, lively, culture transforming force in the wake of the resurrection because they believed and taught and preached and proclaimed that jesus rose and we could trust in him and it's an astounding message really to not only just preach not just to preach but not just suggest in our day and age a lot of question marks are in everything you notice this that everyone ends every statement with an uptick like i like coffee I'm just suggesting here. The preaching's got a different feel to it, confidently and winsomely asserting that something actually happened in history, and that something is astonishing. Here's the something: Jesus was brain dead. That's how we mark deadness these days. He was brain dead, then brain alive. His body was covered in spices because he was dead and smelling. It's another way we know something's dead around us. I've lived in Florida long enough to know. Sometimes things die and they stink. Smelling, then smiling. Jesus was wasting away and then walking upright and through walls. And they preached these things. And Paul tells them, man, all of that is vain if the resurrection didn't happen. And you know what? It's worse than just lifeless teaching, just a waste of time. I'd say it's worse than just vanity. He goes on and he says, not only that, but we're liars. He says, we would have been found to be misrepresenting God. We're false prophets. And you know how big of a deal it is to be a false prophet? They stoned people for that kind of thing. You could die for getting it wrong. Invoking God's name and then getting it wrong, you'd just be offed. Is that what the kids call it these days? Not offing someone. You know what's intriguing about this is that blasphemy in our day and age is somewhat expected and it's downplayed. And I think that it indicates a maybe a, a lessening of our reverence or fear of God. Nowadays, if you get it wrong, you're a prophet and you get it wrong, you just push the date back and release new merch. But Paul says not only would this be vain teaching, but we would be lying. You know, there's something cute about ignorance. You can just kind of hand wave it away. But it's much worse than that, he says. It's much worse than that. The message of the whole church is intentional, misleading, blasphemous emptiness. So if there's no resurrection, if, then Christ is not raised. And it's a big deal to Paul because he's dedicated his entire life to preaching this fact. In fact, it is this message that built the church Because the resurrection is the good news and the good news. There's no other good news to give you if the entire message is Jesus came and he lived a pretty exemplary life, but you know, in the end, he died just like the rest of us. This doesn't move anybody. Maybe if you're the kind of person that's easily inspired, you say, well, I like ethical examples. Okay, I'll give you that. But that's not the thing that built the church and changed the known world. It was the resurrection from the dead that was the good news. I'm not going to go back and rehearse every single instance, but if you carefully trace the New Testament, you'll find out this. To preach the gospel meant to preach the resurrection. Remember Peter at Pentecost? I don't know how churchy you are, but Pentecost is a word for the moment when the Spirit of God descends. Tons of people are in in Jerusalem, and then Peter goes out and he proclaims Jesus of Nazareth, and everyone hears him in their own language. And there's a number of places in that first sermon. In fact, the first preaching of the church over and over again, Peter says things like this. Yeah, Jesus, who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, I just want you to know God raised him up. Later, he quotes the prophecies according to the Scriptures, as Paul just mentioned First 1 Corinthians 15, that according to the Scriptures, Jesus was not abandoned to Hades and his Holy One would never see corruption. He goes on later to say that jesus speaking words that came all the way back to the patriarch david that these foretellings that in fact all of the teaching even of israel was there to foresee and speak about the resurrection of a coming christ and then finally he ends the whole thing you know the punctuation thing land the plane make the thing matter he ends the whole thing and peter says this this jesus God raised from the dead and we are all witnesses. It hangs on the whole thing. That's the linchpin. You pull it out, the whole thing falls apart. Peter wasn't alone in preaching this. The rest of the apostles said the same things. In fact, summarizing in Acts chapter 4, the early church, well, what were they doing? It says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to what? What were they giving their testimony to? To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. It was the testimony concerning the resurrection of Jesus that gave them great grace. Everything else might have been a nice bit of time, but the main thing they spoke was about the resurrection. Paul, again, telling Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, here's what I want you to do. This is going to be the bulk of your ministry. Remember Jesus Christ who has been risen from the dead. He's been raised from the dead. So, the second consequence... In addition to the first one that echoes through all of them, that Christ is not even raised from the dead if there's no resurrection, the second one is that preaching is in vain. Now, many of you could stomach that consequence because you don't preach very often, except about the things you're passionate about. Don't get you started on whatever it is. However, you don't necessarily preach this kind of thing. You see yourself as a little more reserved, and Paul doesn't leave you alone. He says, not only is preaching in vain, but a third consequence, your faith, your faith, every, what you hold dear, you coming here and being a part of this group, your faith is also in vain. You see, these two are connected in verse 14, preaching and faith. He always sees faith as a fruit of the proclamation of the gospel. That's why he said in verse 11 before, we preached and you believed. However, here's what he tells him. I, I want you to realize that there's consequences not only for us who preach the resurrection, but for everyone who gathers around that truth. If there's no resurrection, you have an empty faith. We got nothing to give you. It's kind of a waste of time. What a shame, what a pity, if you would have faith as a mere sincere sentimentality, because what you really need is a saving faith a kind of faith that can overcome your sins, a kind of faith that can carry you beyond the grave, a kind of faith that carries you beyond the constant weight and burdens and fallenness of this world. I've often told people before, at a certain point in my life, I felt very strongly of this fact. I would either become a pastor and proclaim these things for the rest of my life, or I would be just a kind of really nice agnostic. Because I felt what Paul is pressing at here, essentially this, I can't imagine a Christianity worse than this. Hey, everybody, thanks for coming. Just trying to keep the club together. Just trying to keep everybody nice. Oh, no, we don't have any real faith for you. I don't have any hope for you beyond this world. Uh, Your sins, i try to do better next time, I guess. But hey, thanks for coming. Imagine a Christianity with a faith so impotent. Hey, everybody, thanks for sharing your potluck recipes. Ah, Still haven't figured out anything to do with your sins. You're still in your sins. That's what he says. A Christianity that gathers people and has spiritual platitudes, but doesn't have any real hope for forgiveness or overcoming the fallenness of this world. A Christianity that prides itself on giving one another casserole, but no assurance forgiveness of their sins. We keep the casserole, you keep the sins. What a pitiable Christianity. It's devastating, and Paul knows this. He tells them, how can you say there's no resurrection from the dead? The whole thing falls apart. Preaching vanity, faith vanity, and then he goes on and says, here's another consequence. The dead have perished this word for perishing here is really worse than just dying. It means gone forever, only eternal destruction, eternal loss. He basically says to them, have you thought this through? Do you realize how difficult it is to live in this world and watch people die? How unnatural death is? Death is so terribly unnatural. Everyone feels it at the core of their being. He just look around just like, what? What? And he tells them, this is why the resurrection is so amazing. It speaks to that problem. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, then you just remourn all the funerals. Put to rest the possibility of any reunion because the dead have perished. You see, the whole hope we have in this world is that God may be merciful enough and powerful enough to rescue us beyond this life. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then our preaching about him being raised is in vain. Your faith's totally in vain and the dead have perished He sums up the last consequence as this. We have lived a pitiable life. We've lived a pitiable life. Not just a pitiable life. He says the most, we are above all, most to be pitied. Most. He can't think of a more pitiable situation than to have some form of generic spirituality with no hope for resurrection from the dead. It's not a small thing. Down through the ages, people going to grave sites, people facing the depth of their own sinfulness, all hanging and staking their hope on a resurrected Jesus. It's not a small thing. We've staked our whole lives on this. Imagine coming every week and worshiping a defeated Savior. Imagine coming every week and praying in the name of Jesus Christ, the death and dead one. Paul, of course, is being negative. Doesn't this sound negative? <laughs> He's just like, I-, I didn't come here for this, pastor. I came here for hope. But what he tells them by removing is to show them the importance of this building block. It is the green Lego flat piece at the bottom. Everything tumbles if you pull it away. It's all gone. Now, I can tell you, as someone who stands here and says these things... That it is tempting to shrink back from supernatural and potentially absurd things. It does sound insane that a dead person would come back from the life. It does sound insane that someone dying some 2,000 years ago, 1991 is a hundred that many years ago as far as historians can tell, it does sound slightly insane. And if we just describe Jesus as a mere moral teacher, it's much safer. If he's just a great example of humility, it's much more politically correct, If he was just an economic reformer, well, that's edgy, but it's kind of in a palatable sort of way. But I want to tell you today, no matter what the rest of the implications of Jesus' life may or may not be, I don't have any other message to offer you this morning than that he bodily rose from the dead and he makes up the entirety of the hope of our faith. I don't have any other message to give you this morning because there's no other message of a church There's no other message that the apostles gave. It's not the message of Paul. If you take all of this away, we don't have much left. In fact, it's worse than not having much left. What we have left is to be pitied. And so by the time Paul gets to verse 20, after dealing with their list of things, he basically says this, in fact, but in fact, but always the best word in the Bible, but in fact, We turn all the consequences on their head, and instead of having them removed, we prop them up. We throw them back in, and we realize Christ has been raised from the dead. Our preaching is not in vain. We proclaim these things, and the truth is that down through the ages, even if you don't know how or why, something stirs within you. And you say, this is what I long for. I have felt a guilt over sin. It does feel like there's a standard in the world. I see someone dying for me on a cross, and it compels me. More than that, I long for hope from the grave. And so not only has Christ raised from the dead, but preaching down through the ages, proclaiming this, sometimes like this with a microphone, sometimes over coffee, sometimes through dreams, but a proclamation of Jesus brings about not vanity, but real strong faith. That's just the way this works. And more than that, because Jesus was raised from the dead, you are no longer in your sins. If you are in him, then you have been forgiven. More than that, all of those who have died in Christ are not lost forever. They will not face judgment forever, but we have hope that there can be life after death. All of this because of the resurrection. And so, my hope this morning is that what happened in verse 11, as Paul mentioned, here's what happens. He goes around and he keeps proclaiming a risen Christ, and the Spirit of God keeps making people alive. And they keep clinging to Jesus despite all of the circumstances around them. They're dying. The apostles go to the point where they have to be martyred one after the next, and none of it stops the persistent, powerful faith that they have in a resurrected Jesus. Paul says it's kind of crazy. I know it's not very sophisticated. It doesn't win a Nobel Prize for intellectualism, but here's what happens. I go around and I say Jesus was risen from the dead, and we have hope in him, and then people keep coming alive, and they find themselves bound by faith to him, and that is the message of the church. It's the only hope we have to offer. I mean, I hope this morning that you find a smile or two, and I hope you get a little fist bump, and I hope you find some coffee, maybe a sense of belonging. Oh, there's so many wonderful implications of this truth. The church is a wonderful place. I mean, we're, we're messed up too, but we're wonderful in a lot of ways. I hope you get all that, but it's not the hope that we have to offer you. The only hope we have to offer you is that if you would bind yourself to Jesus, then he lived a life that you couldn't live, a perfect one. And he died a death that you should have died, absorbing the wrath of God. The punishment of sin is death. And then more than that, well, the only hope that I have to offer you, the essence of Christianity down through the ages in every true form has been this, that Jesus Christ overcame the grave, that by the power of the Spirit, he was raised to newness of life. And if we would follow with him, we would walk in newness of life too. That's the message, plain and simple. Any other thing is an imitation and you don't want it. It's the stale Walmart brand Pop-Tarts, horrible. I don't want to give you that this morning. So I'm banking on this simple fact. I'm going to do what Paul did. I've just told you about Jesus. I've said that he's raised from the dead. And my prayer from the depth of my soul has been that you would listen and you would hear and you would believe. Would you pray with me? Let's do that. God, thank you for Scripture. We thank you for Paul's logic as he goes through and by subtraction shows the significance of the resurrection. I thank you for the honesty of Paul too, that we don't have a fragile faith here this morning, that we're guarding and protecting. Help us to face the real stakes in front of us. God, we long for solid hope one that's real, that will carry us through. And I ask, Spirit of God, would you work in us a kind of faith, even an unexplainable kind of faith? The persistent drawing, the persistent wooing of your Spirit, please come in our midst. I pray that as we sing, as words are offered to you in Jesus' name, as I've read Scripture, God, please bind us to Jesus and give us hope in his resurrection. We ask it in his name. Amen.